0: Hello, and welcome to Profit's Healthcare Changemakers podcast, where we'll be talking to leaders in healthcare who are focused on transforming their organizations to drive the next level of growth for their business and for healthcare. At Profit, we believe that the organizations that thrive in healthcare are those that dare to change the game, striving to improve human health, create better experiences, and make the best of care an enduring and sustainable reality for all. Those that will transform healthcare are the change makers. And for this podcast, we want to focus on them. Our podcast styles into and recognizes the people behind the transformation and their journeys in changing the game one story at a time. Are you ready to dive in?
1: Welcome to today's podcast. I am pleased to have Dr. Fasil Sayed with me. Fasil, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to be over here with you, Jeff. Good. So I want to talk about a number of things with you, but first, tell us about yourself. First, give us the overview of you, who you are professionally, and give us one fun personal Tidbit that cannot be found anywhere else on social media, or at least your professional social media. How about that?
2: There's really, I mean, there's no real line for me. I mean, it's all kind of. I just kind of put it all out there. <laughs> I'm Faisal Sayed. Uh, I'm a family doctor. I trained at uh, at an unopposed family medicine. Program in Columbus, Georgia. I started my career at an FQHC as a community doctor. I still very much feel like a community doctor. I feel like I'm always going to be a community doctor. I'm currently, though, the national director of primary care at ChenMed. This is actually my fifth job with the company in the last five years. I joined ChenMed five years ago. I was a primary care doctor in a new market in the Tampa Bay area for ChenMed. I started off without a you know, single patient. Uh, it was a big transition for me, you know, being the chief medical officer of one of the largest federally qualified health centers in the country to being a full-risk primary care doctor and all the work that comes with that. So fun <laughs> personal tidbit I could say is that, uh, so my wife and I bought a fixer-upper house early on in the pandemic. So I remember like in the beginning, everybody was staying home and we were trying to be safer. So we started binge watching these Fixer-upper shows, and and I am not that person. Okay, I'm not a guy who's just gonna like you know, renovate a house and gut a house. We felt pretty brave. Good for you.
1: Well, good luck with that.
2: And we had no. Well, we ended up buying a fixer-upper house, gutted the house, you know, and it was supposed to be a six to eight week Reno that ended up taking like nine, ten months. So is it, it's done. And now I am that guy. So now, like, if you need any help with the bathroom or even the garage or whatever, I'm your guy.
1: Well, and you know, they say comedy equals tragedy plus time. Right. So whatever <laughs> you thought then, it's all funny now. Right. So. <laughs> it's true. So true. Talk about the arc of your career. And tell me about some of the formative experiences that kind of shaped the orientation and outlook you have today on how medicine should be delivered.
2: It I mean, many. I mean, it happened in residency residencies where i saw all the what what happens when people don't have access or feel that they deserve access to the healthcare delivery system you know when people feel that we know in america access to medical care is a privilege is not a right in america so there's a lot that that's to be said about that if you're at the if you're a victim of that you know you'll wait for small things to become big things you'll be you'll wait when it concerns prevention you'll suffer unnecessarily because, and not only just medically, but even financially too. I mean, now the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is medical debt. So anyways, it started in residency, of course, in the community health world. That's where we I saw all the inequities. I mean, you see what happens when people, just with something as basic as transportation. In the Tampa Bay area, a 10 to 15 minute car drive can take easily one to two hours. So for a patient to come see the doctor, and especially from the w- when you're dealing with patients who are struggling with all the basics, like the home insecurity, food insecurity, all the all the basics. I mean, to lose a half a day of work to go see the doctor, I mean, of
1: course you're going to wait until you have a chief complaint. Faisal, before we talk about med, but I'm going to edge toward it, I'd love, just tell me your take on what works and what is broken about primary care today. And then I'd love just to get your orientation around like some of the, the role ChenMed plays, and, and and tell me all about ChenMed, but I also love you to do the compare and contrast because I'm still trying to learn about all the innovative primary care platforms that are out there and how ChenMed is similar or different from a, One Medical, a Village MD, a you know Oak Street Health, etc. Give me the landscape, but start with start with yeah, let's start with with, with primary care, and what's broken and what works.
2: Well, I mean, if we zoom out, if we just zoom out. Quickly, we currently now spend over $4 trillion a year on healthcare in the United States. It's an incredible amount of money. And the waste, the waste in healthcare delivery has been studied for a long time. I remember the first time I read about the waste in healthcare delivery was back in 2007, 2008 when the country crossed the $700 billion mark with waste, you know, things that are medically unnecessary. It was a 2019 or 2020, we crossed the $1 trillion mark with waste. And before joining ChenMed, you know, I was at my community health center. And I remember when I used to think about waste as a primary care doctor, immediately I thought about over-referring to specialists, you know, rather than, than the primary care doctor handling the situation or over-prescribing a brand name drugs, you know, over over the generic equivalents. Yeah, those are definitely wasteful. You know, I mean, there's no doubt that there's a lot of waste that happens there, but that's not what's driving the waste in our healthcare delivery system. What's driving the waste in our healthcare delivery system is the unnecessary hospitalizations, which is fueled by unnecessary emergency room visits. What's the, you know, you're seeing all these standalone emergency rooms popping up all over the place because the hospitals know that most of the patients who go to the emergency room are stable. They just didn't have access to primary care. And that's what's driving the waste in our system. I Four years ago, I was just a year into working at, at Chen Med as a full-risk doctor. It really hit me at that time. It was personal for me at that time. Like, I, I had pneumonia. It was just terrible. I never was that sick before. You know, I couldn't catch my breath. And so I went to a standalone emergency room right outside of our neighborhood. I mean, I really couldn't catch my breath. I was telling my wife, I can't catch my breath. Can't catch. And she said, do you mean you're experiencing shortness of breath? doctor. I was like, yeah, you know, so I went to the emergency room and I went there and I was there for a couple of hours. They did all the routine stuff, you know, chest x-ray. I had antibiotics. I saw the pneumonia on the picture. So I had the IV antibiotic. I had the IV. I had oral antibiotic. I had Tylenol. I had an EKG. And you know what the bill was for that? Oh, $10,000, almost $10,000. My insurance ended up negotiating. They ended up paying like sixty eight. for that. But I took that, the itemized breakdown to one of our centers because we treat that in the outpatient setting. And my center manager went through and she said, oh yeah, you know, Dr. Sayed, the IV fluid's a dollar, the injection antibiotic, we have, it's like 80 cents, the oral antibiotics, 40 cents, the Tylenol is not even a penny. You know, we don't charge for chest x-rays, but the cash price for any two view chest x-ray in Tampa is $15. So that's what's driving the waste in our healthcare delivery system. You know, we're paying $7,000 for these, you know, $20 pneumonias. And so it felt very real to me at that point. And then, that, then not to, you know, mention all the, the little bills. It was like $17 that wasn't covered. We didn't know about, went to debt collection. I mean, it was just crazy. And then uh, I became one of the, you know, we became one of the one in five people who were in debt collection due to medical bills. You know, and that's when I was like, yeah, hey, I can see how, you know, medical debt is now the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. There's no other country in the world that has this problem that we have here. When I think about bankruptcy, I remember, you know, my father had to declare bankruptcy. It was a very tough time for us as a family, you know, the late 80s, he ended up losing a lot of money with some bad real estate deals. And so he had to declare bankruptcy. But he declared bankruptcy because of some decisions he made, you know, that didn't turn out well. But nobody chooses to become a patient. You know, I didn't choose to become a patient. It just it just happened. And also, by the way, with uh, all the people who declare bankruptcy because of medical debt, more than half of them actually had health insurance. So even having health insurance won't protect you from financial ruin in the United States. Literally, many people are just one diagnosis away from bankruptcy.
1: I mean, it's completely unethical. Your points are very, very well taken and, and critical driver of, of why healthcare has to be transformed. But there's also a big human component of people not getting primary care, right? Not only does it lead to medical bankruptcy, it leads to poor health. Obviously. Of course, I mean, of course, if medical care is being delivered
2: in the hospital setting, that should be delivered within a high quality primary care system. You know, so what's the problem there? Well, I can tell you what the problem is. The problem is is that primary care in the United States is viewed in a very limited manner. When most people think of primary care, they think of referral renewals, they think of refilling medication, and maybe if you're lucky, you get wellness visits out of that. You know, the problem that we have in our system right now is that, you know, we have almost a million doctors in America, you know, 200,000 are in the primary care space, 800,000 are specialists, 70 to 80% of the practices, uh, the, all these outpatient facilities are owned by hospitals. And so we end up paying for when primary care is delivered by the in all the wrong places, you know, if it's delivered by specialists, if it's delivered in the urgent care setting, if it's delivered in the emergency room setting, we end up paying for
1: that, you know, as a society. Speak to your concern about the, Nate, the the ownership state of primary care being owned by hospitals. How is that skew? I'm sure it skews incentives, right? Of course,
2: you know. I mean, but the fact that everyone does not have access to a high quality primary care system in the United States, I mean that's a big that's a huge problem. Yeah, you know, even with me, my my wife scheduled my, my I'm 43. In February, my wife said, hey, you know, we got to schedule your your physical. I said, okay. So she scheduled in in February. Do you know how long I had to wait for my appointment? A couple of months. Four months. I mean, this is a state of affairs right now with primary care. Primary care is not viewed like we're trained to do all these things. We're trained to manage patients in the hospital. We're trained to do all these procedures. We're trained to do so much so far as primary care is concerned. And then you get out into the world and it's a billing system. The goal is to generate revenue by billing. And so who benefits the most? Yeah. No, I was just saying, like, who benefits the most from this system? If the goal is to generate more by billing more, right, generating more RVUs, rather than to improve health, you know, that like, if you pick on the flu, for example, you know, as a country would just cross the 50% mark with American adults being vaccinated against influenza. You know, it's been hovering in the 40s for a long, long time. That's despite the flu vaccine being available everywhere with the $10 gift cards. You know, I mean, it's terrible. But what ends up happening with the multiple vulnerable. Who gets a, when they had the complications, where do they end up? They end up in the hospital. They go to emergency room, they get admitted in the hospital. So who benefits when you have low vaccination rates against influenza? I mean, the hospitals do. The hospitals look forward to a good flu season for them. It's terrible for doctors and patients, but it Equals big bucks for the hospital systems.
1: Yeah, it's good for the bottom line. So let's talk about some of the root causes. I, my suspicion is there are root causes on the, I'll call it a supply side and the demand side, right? You mentioned 80% of doctors are specialists, right? So there may be a there's, a, there's a supply problem. It took four months to get a appointment. That's a supply problem. There's also a demand problem. Like how many people your age and younger say, you said, who's your doctor? They actually have a doctor. They can name a person. We have,
2: this is generations now. You know, we're decades now at the point now where the culture has become this way. The culture has become this way where it's been so transactional that even the language of healthcare delivery today is transactional. You know, but doctors are referred to as providers. You know, patients are referred to as clients. Even the visits between them are now called encounters. So we don't view the healthcare delivery system to improve health. We view the healthcare delivery system as like, you know, the way that we view anything else. Like if it's like with going to the bank or, you know, going to the mechanic, like waiting until there's a problem. And then I go there to get me like an intervention. You know, is there an incentive
1: for prevention? No. Is there an incentive for early interventions? No. No. So you would probably take issue with the subtitle of my book around consumer calling people consumers, right?
2: Well, I mean, it's natural for it to come to get into that into that direction. And the tragedy is like, you know, you, we have all these huge problems. You know, we've got over 140 million Americans of cardiovascular disease. And if we know that a big chunk of that is fueled by hypertension, high blood pressure, and we know that 95 percent of high blood pressure, has zero symptoms. But when we have a system that is a chief complaint system, the patient presents with a chief complaint, and the entire reimbursement for the visit is tied to that chief complaint, then the doctor's primary concern kind of goes out somewhere
1: else. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the reason, we don't love the term consumer either, right? I think our, our mutual friend, Jared Johnson, and I both use the term consumer to speak for the idea that People, let's call them people, need to be treated beyond the moment in the exam room. And we'll we'll often say, I'll say to my hospital system clients, yes, they're patients when they're in your exam room, but when they're outside of your facility and they're managing their health and they're managing their chronic conditions and they're managing their wellness, they're not patients and they don't think of themselves as patients, right? So we've adopted the term consumer, although it's got its own baggage and limitations.
2: Sure. At the end of the day, you know, yes, we are all, I guess you can, you can look at, it. if we change the currency to improving health, then yeah, you know, then I'm a consumer, then I'm a consumer as well. We just change it instead of, instead of the currency is being tied to RBUs and billing, you know, we had a, a currency of health and yeah, I'd be, a, I'd be a consumer there.
1: Yeah, there you go. Okay, so tell me about your coming to ChenMed, what problem you think it's solving in the world? Oh, well, I mean, the, coming to ChenMed
2: was like kismet for me. I'm at my community health center. We're, we're, we're busy with all the work that, you know, that involves community health, a large number of unfunded patients, a large number of people who just lacked all the basic, a lot of the basic necessities. I mean, it is, you know, where they live, who they live with, when they eat, what they eat, all of that. That's part of the daily world in the community health world. And I couldn't get doctors, you know, I couldn't get doctors to Come help us in the neighborhoods where we had our centers. And then I started seeing these vans, these Chen Med vans, in the neighborhoods where I couldn't get anybody to go to. I was begging people to go to these neighborhoods. And they were picking up our patients from those community and uh, neighborhoods and and taking them to center where there was food and they had Tai Chi and they had it just Bible study even. And I thought, my goodness, you know, how and why? Does anybody know who they are? Nobody knew who they were. Nobody knew. I asked around the city, I said, have you heard? They said, no, there's a private company based out of Miami. They're very passionate about social justice and taking care of the underserved. And so that was in July, five years ago. A month later, I was at the Florida Academy meeting. And that's where I saw the ChenMed booth. And that was my first interaction was with one of the recruiters. And I was just asking questions. I said, you know, everything that you're doing sounds amazing, looks amazing. But what do you what do you do with people who don't have insurance. That, that was like a big chunk of my, my time was spent with how do we help people who had no resources? And she said to me, she said, she said, oh, well, all our patients have insurance. And so then I just walked away. I said, oh, you're just another money-making operation. And she said, no, 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 wait, no, no, wait, wait, wait. we're focused on seniors. You know, they have Medicare. So we work within the Medicare Advantage space. And I said, oh, okay. Because I was used to saying, well, you know, we we look after the most vulnerable in community health. Then I found out, you know, well, Chen Med's focused in the same neighborhoods as the community health centers, but laser focused on seniors and improving the health of seniors. So my average community health center patient was only 37, 38 years old, whereas the
1: average patient here at Chen Med is over 70 years old, much more medically complex. OK, so you joined. So tell me. Tell me about the model. What's special about it? Why should seniors care about but they can get a chin med. How's it fixing the primary care problems that we spoke of? Well, I mean, seniors and
2: more importantly, the doctors and the care teams. You know, what good are we to our patients if we don't take care of our doctors and care teams first? That was a huge shift in mindset. I'm used to, you know, patient-centered medical home, patient-centered this, patient-centered that. And then I come to this organization where we take care of, are doctors and the care teams. There are these philosophies like just because a doctor can do something doesn't mean a doctor should be doing it. You do that when the doctor is fully responsible. Like you said, most of health care, most of health doesn't happen in the four walls of the exam room. So how do you do that? Most of health happens outside (laughs) of the exam room. So what happens when the doctor is fully responsible, fully responsible for everything? Fully responsible for all the public health work, all the urgent care work, all the emergency room, all the non-interventional specialty stuff, you know, all every hospitalization, every medication. You know, then suddenly we make some shifts in our mind. Like we know how to treat in America. We're great at treating diseases, we're great at training doctors with all the evidence-based medical guidelines. But what about now we have decades of evidence-based communication strategies? So if we know that the main driver of waste is unnecessary hospitalizations. Right. And now you give the doctor full responsibility. The doctor has what's called full risk, you know, outside is called full risk. Now the doctor's fully responsible. Of course, the doctor's going to want to focus on reducing the waste. And we know the main driver of waste is unnecessary hospitalizations fueled by unnecessary emergency room visits. So now the language and the culture of healthcare delivery matters much, much more because it's not a matter of just being prescriptive. When you become fully responsible, you need to be effective. So you need to simplify and focus. Okay, we have to align the doctors, the care teams, everybody who's involved with patient care to focus around what can we do to improve the health of our patients. And you got to simplify it. You know, there's a lot of different pillars of health, 14 pillars of health, nine pillars of health, so many different, you know, but what if we simplified it to three pillars of health, prevention, early intervention, and easing of suffering. So then with prevention alone, with the flu shot,
1: there wouldn't be like a take it or leave it sort of approach with prevention. So what do they do? They, like they chase them and wait outside their door at home and or call them until they come and get the flu shot? Heavy training,
2: heavy training, heavy training. Every doctor has a month of orientation, a month. The first month is just orientation. Do you know how much training I had at my first job? The morning of the first day. Very different, very different. Because doctors, we know how to treat, but we have to train our doctors with how to be better influencers, how to be better listeners. How to respond to patients who are resistant to whatever the recommendation is that you're making, or even flipping about it, just kind of like, hey, whatever, you know, it's not something not something I want to do. So how do you earn the trust of patients is through all these small little interactions. If the patients can trust us when they need us, then, of course, they would much rather come to the primary care delivery system rather than an urgent care, rather than the some random person, you know,
1: in an urgent care emergency room. So you've got to either know that they need an early intervention or you've got to reach out to find out. Well, you have to have the relationship. The relationship is
2: fundamental. Every single one of our patients has their doctor's cell phone number. Every single patient has a routine monthly visit. You know, the, the relationship is so important. Our average patient's over 70 years old with five or more chronic medical conditions, right? And we're scaling as well as an organization. You know, we started in South Florida almost 40 years ago. Chen started ChenMed. Chen Med. almost 40 years ago in the 80s. So we're scaling, you know, the James and Mary Chen started uh, Chen Med and their sons, Chris and Gordon, have really taken the helm over the last decade and started scaling the full risk model all over the country. So as we're scaling, a big part of scaling is earning trust in all these new communities. And we're going into communities where they (laughs) they don't trust the healthcare delivery system. So a lot of the frequency, I mean, that's how you build trust. You know, it's with these frequency of visits, weekly phone calls, daily text messages. I mean, the primary care delivery system is the most trusted so far as your health is concerned.
1: So let's talk about the enablers of that, right? So training... Sounds like a good one. But if you're gonna give doctors full accountability, what else do they need? Right. They need to be financially tied, right? So we could talk about all reimbursement. But they also, I suspect, need need the full suite of tools necessary to take care of the range of conditions. How do you do that? How do you is that baked into your model? Is that something you coordinate with other other part partners or third parties?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, if you look at if you look at even how how medical care is documented in the United States today. You know, it's completely, you know, it's completely disorganized, completely fragmented. So many of the systems don't talk with each other. My father, last October, was visiting my brother in Texas and he fell while walking my brother's dog, shattered his hip, and so he goes to the emergency room, he's got a shattered hip, he's in agony, he's in pain, and he could have very well just, you know, come from Mars, there was nothing. He had nothing in their medical record in that hospital because, you know, the system is just so, you know, doesn't talk with each other. And so they wanted to know his allergies, what medications he takes, and he's just in agony. saying, like, oh yeah, you know, I I, I have this heart medicine. Meta- <laughs> it was just, it was terrible. And so we have to have our own EMR system. So ChenMed has its own EMR system. One, most of the EMR systems are designed to bill and to generate referrals. Right? You know, we don't have like a customer service sort of. <laughs> EMR system like a relationship based EMR system where multiple people from the team can can go through and the, and the goal of the EMR system is to sort of view it like in the way that like you know a customer service company looks at their at their clients and so that had to be developed the data and the analytics to know where the patients are within the healthcare delivery system the healthcare delivery system is very complicated. So when a patient goes to the emergency room, for example, and they swipe their insurance card and they're there in the emergency room to be able to have the data support where I get a a notification on my phone that my patient is in the emergency room with this chief complaint. This was the last visit very quickly, you know, even before the emergency room doctor knows that the patient is there, that type of that's all in house. So that's been developed over the last several decades. and, And it's constantly, constantly being improved based on feedback that we get from our doctors
1: and the care teams. So enablers, the training, the EMR system.
2: Well, the culture, you know, the culture, I mean, many doctors have become completely disconnected with why they got into medicine in the first place. The number one thing I hear from doctors who are practicing outside is that, you know, they'll say, I'm I'm surrounded by all these people, surrounded by medical assistants, nurses, patients, all these different people, but I feel alone. You know, I'm doing all this work during the day and then I go home and I have to do charting at night. So there's just this, they've, the doctors in the fee-for-service system have gotten completely disconnected with why they wanted to become a doctor. And patients feel it, too. Patients know this. Patients know that the doctor wants to help, but the doctor is working in this system that's a distraction from the patient. And so when you start with this culture saying that, hey, we must restore the sacred doctor-patient relationship, that's how you eliminate all the inequities that you have happening in, in healthcare delivery today,
1: right? Yeah. So no, it's a, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, investors obviously believe so as well, right? Which is why we're seeing the one medical and the village MD get, you know, become part of bigger organizations. But what, what are the remaining barriers? If you were the charge of the hetero federal health system or, you know, whatever, maybe even more powerful than that, like what needs to change to fix primary care and to deliver lower cost care at, and better outcomes at a better experience? Like, is it about, more doctors? Is it changes, more changes to reimbursement policy? Is it, uh, what is it? What will it take?
2: Yeah. So healthcare should not, number one, healthcare should not be transactional. That change has to happen. The currency of healthcare delivery should not be generating RVUs. The currency of healthcare delivery ought to be some system that's tied to improving health. So where the healthcare delivery system is rewarded for being better at prevention, the healthcare delivery system is better at early intervention. And the third pillar of health, we didn't get to that, the third pillar of health is easing of suffering. You know, the fee-for-service, most of, most of healthcare delivery up until like 100, 150 years ago was easing of suffering. In the fee-for-service world, it's giving up. Like if you can't treat our... If you can't prevent or treat, then that's easing of suffering. It's not giving up on the patients. And dying is not the few moments before you stop breathing or your heart stops beating. You know, For most people, it's a process. And so that is where the healthcare delivery system really needs to come in. I mean, that's where the intimacy really needs to come and uh, to help ease the suffering. And so if the healthcare delivery system has changed the currency to improving health rather than, than simply just billing more, then things just start falling into place. You know, if we start treating people as human beings, not the sum of their problems, right? Right now it's a problem list, right? It's not a, it's not a human being. Like if it, if you met me as, you know, like, I mean, b- before we, before we started recording, I didn't start speaking until I was four, right? So that then I have pervasive development disorder, right? I I'm on the autistic spectrum, you know, I've got ADD, you know, I have, you know, so you would have a different perception of me. Because you would say, well, you know, this is, you're looking at me for my problems. You're not looking at me for, uh, you know, as, you know, something much more than whatever my my medical problems are, right? And so we must transition away from this hospital-based delivery system to one that is based on high quality primary care, where everyone has access to that primary care delivery system. And so then health means different things to different people. You know, then you start to, instead of viewing medical care being rationed, right? You start to risk stratify. You say, well, I've got so many doctors, you know, who do I need more? Do I really need a board certified doctor to be looking after me at 43? I don't take any medications or anything like that. I need more my coach, you know, my my fitness coach, my, you know, a nutritionist to work with me with my diet and my life. I need more of that to improve my health than I do like a board certified doctor. You know, if we know that 60 to 80 percent of the modifiable health outcomes are based on things like where you live, who you live with, what you eat, when you eat. Do you have transportation? Do you not? Are you lonely? You you know, we know that most of the modifiable health outcomes are based on these social issues. Then perhaps we need to have more social people, like more of the social workers. Perhaps we need more, much more behavioral health than what we what we do right now
1: within the primary care delivery system. So we we need a lot more doctors and we need to deploy them to the point of where they're most needed, right? To your point. We need to train them. We need to train doctors. To just assume that,
2: that you know, you get me and you put me in a room with a patient. Well, he's a doctor who's going to do the right thing. He's going to be able to convince the patient.
1: You need to convince more people to go to medical school. We need to train them right all the way from medical school through the point of practice, to your point. And then we need to deploy them in the most critical way. Yeah. That's right. Good. I'm going to leave it there. Dr. Faisal Syed, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Syed has his own Faisal and Friends podcast, which uh, is a great listen. And uh, we appreciate speaking with you. Hey, this was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Profit's Healthcare Transformers podcast. This podcast is produced by Jared Johnson and his wonderful team at Shift Forward Health. And a big thank you to our hosts, Priya and Asia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. If you liked today's episode, you can find more great content like this at profit.com slash thinking. I'm Anna Kuno, the senior editor of this podcast. Thank you for listening.